Welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of Transformers, both the movie and the AI thing. I'm your friend David Pierce, and I am sitting here catching up on Wimbledon, the best tennis tournament of the year. Whoa. Surely point of the tournament so far, that one. You have got to be kidding me. It's been a busy few days for me, so I'm a bit behind. But luckily, Wimbledon.com has a pretty good set of highlights so I can catch up on all the matches I missed in just a few minutes at a time. And I don't know if you know this, but Wimbledon is doing a thing with AI commentary in these highlights. It's part of some collaboration with IBM's Watson, and I can see how it's an interesting and cool idea. But oh boy, it's so, so, so bad. Like, okay, listen to this one. A recap of Monday's match between Christopher Eubanks and Stefanos Tsitsipas. Eubanks plays Tsitsipas for the first time in their careers. First of all, it gets one of the two names just wrong. And then that's all it says for like 30 seconds. This is not commentary. Actually, wait, this will be fun. Here is every single thing the AI says throughout the rest of this three and a half minute highlight clip. Titsi Pass wins the first set after Eubanks unforced backhand error. Set number two, Titsi Pass is forced into a backhand error, loses the second set. Set number three, unable to return the forehand from Titsi Pass, Eubanks loses the set. Great point opportunity for Eubanks. Eubanks wins the set after Titsi Pass cannot deal with his serve. Titsi Pass facing breakpoint. Eubanks wins the match point, defeating Titsi Pass six games to four in the last set. Did you get anything from that? I mean, what is the point of this? It's not commentary. I'm not really sure what it is. I am very intrigued in general by the idea of AI commentary, which could have access to data and insights and real-time knowledge that even the best humans can't see. But this ain't it, folks. Oh, wait, one more thing on this, and then we will actually get to the show. Today's Vergecast is not about Wimbledon, I promise. But the most actually commentary-ish thing the AI has done for me, at least in the highlights I've seen so far, was in a match with Andy Murray from a few days ago, where it completely spoiled the play that was coming like three shots before it happened. Peniston hits a backhand winner on game point. It's really ridiculous, right? AI has lots of potential in lots of areas. We're going to talk about some of it today, but it is definitely not stealing any commentary jobs just yet. Anyway, let's get to the show because it's a good one. We're going to talk about all the new stuff in Apple's new betas because we're probably getting public betas soon, which means you'll be able to download the new software if you want to. And there's lots of interesting stuff coming to phones and tablets and watches and TVs and all of Apple's devices. We're also going to talk about how we talk about AI, LLMs, chatbots, and all this other vocabulary we've had to learn these last few months. And we're going to talk about the video games we're most excited about this summer, because there are a lot of them. All that is coming in just a sec. But first, I just heard that a tennis player named Andre Rublev did, like, the coolest shot anyone has ever seen. Let me watch this real fast. See, now that is commentary. Oh, and in case you were wondering, I went back and just watched the AI highlight, and it had literally nothing to say about that point. Great job, Watson. Cool future we're living in. This is The Verge Cast. We'll be right back. That is one of the great shots we've seen here in years to get him to match point. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. 
choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back. First up today, we're going to dive into all of the new Apple software coming to your devices this fall. The developer betas have been out for a while, so people who make apps can learn how to use the new features and tools, and we're pretty sure the public beta is coming soon as well. So we figured we'd go through the stuff that matters, the stuff that's unexpectedly good and bad and somewhere in between, and what you can expect either on the beta or this fall when you get the updates. We got a bunch to do, so let's get to it. First up, let's do watchOS with vSong. Hi, V. Hi. We're going to talk about watchOS 10. Yes, the the great old watchOS 10. <laughs> Which Apple billed as, what was it, the biggest change to watchOS since watchOS? It was billed as a milestone. And having used it for a couple weeks, I get why. But just on the surface, it kind of feels like a, mm, I think we should redefine what milestone <laughs> is. Like at WWDC, I was like, what milestone it's just widgets but mm -hmm. having used it it's oh it's widgets it's widgets all the way down oh interesting tell me more what like what does it actually change about how you use the thing a little bit of everything it's one of those significant but subtle changes like i can now use watch faces that don't have complications on it and not feel like i'm missing out which for me is huge because i aesthetically don't love the look of modular duo or like modular which is my go-to watch face yep but you know i have them because i'm a data girly i need to see everything i need to access my complications i need things now i need it yesterday and widgets allows me to use something like this little snoopy guy uh which by the way snoopy watch face they undersold that um <laughs> but basically the widgets allow me to use all these watch faces that i felt were not available to someone like me before. So you basically get a lot more personalization because of the widgets. And um, I actually liken it to kind of reading Chinese and Japanese versus English, because you can absorb so much more, more quickly with a widget than you can with a tiny little complication or even just a little thing on your watch face. You can see it and go like, oh, I now know the weather conditions for the next six hours mm. in an instant, which, you know, it's wild. You know, widgets are not a revolutionary concept on smartwatches. Wear OS has them, their tiles, whatever they right. want to call their particular brand of widgets. It makes a lot of sense to have, but watchOS has kind of been fumbling along without it since watchOS 3, I believe. So it's it's kind of odd to see it come back. And it's like dominoes. Because you've added widgets, everything else needs to change in small, subtle ways. So it's it's really kind of been blowing my mind at how natural 
yet different everything feels compared to watch os 9 so the idea of the watch now right is that you have your watch face and then the stack of widgets kind of lives underneath it in sort of the the like mental model of the software right and so you do you swipe up do you scroll the like how do you get to the widgets uh, you can either swipe or scroll up. So what you would use to do to get to control center now will bring you the smart stack of widgets. Much better use of the space underneath than control center. Yeah, well, control center, you still have it. You just basically right. have to hit the slide button, which makes more sense when you think about it. But my muscle memory is completely effed up because I'm <laughs> so used to doing things a certain way that now I'm always like, oh, no, wait, if I want to find my phone because I use the find iPhone button like 20 times in a day, I never know where my iPhone is. Like if I want to use that, I have to hit the side button. But now I'm bringing up widgets and just oh, like, oh, I appreciate the widgets, but that's not what I wanted. So it's that type of small change that is really big when you think about it, but like that's just because I've been using Apple Watches for forever. If you're new to it, you'll get used to it a lot faster than I am. That's fair. So the big thing I've been wondering about watchOS 10 is the thing I do probably more than any other activity on my watch is just like play and pause stuff. That's like the most I touch my watch is if I'm like walking and I want to like change the song or go back in a podcast. Part of the reason I like the watch is I don't have to dig into my pocket. I can just, you know, hit the thing. Are the widgets interactive? Do they work that way in that you can like, I can just scroll up and hit pause in the pocket cast widget and this will solve all my problems? Well, right now I can't answer that fully because all the widgets are Apple widgets. It's all for the Apple native apps. Um, We'll have to see what third parties do with it. But there is one widget that's basically three complications uh, in one little widget stack. So oh, that's neat. You know, that's that one's kind of neat. It took me a while to figure out how I wanted to use it, but I actually think that's pretty cool. But um, widgets are both like instantaneous information and an app launcher in one, which okay. is interesting. So it's like complications magnified. And then at the same time, all the apps have been redesigned. So the way you use apps on the watch is going to change. So you can still do all of that pretty quickly. It's just, I think the way you perceive and process information in watchOS 10 is much different. It feels like an actual mini phone app as opposed to like, uh, let's just draw this phone app from memory and make it small. (laughs) It's a very very subtle but significant change. And I think that's kind of the theme with watchOS 10 where you're really not going to notice how different it is until you sit and think about it, which is what I've been doing while writing my preview. Yeah, as as one does. Yeah, I was like, oh, there's not much different. Actually, wait, uh, this app is completely changed. Like the weather app, completely different. I love it. It's so it's so much better than it, it was because, you know, the weather app used to just be like this giant screen that you scroll down and you're just like endlessly scrolling because yeah. you want to know the chance of precipitation. Now you just like tap a thing and you switch to like, I guess I would call it the precipitation tab and there it is. And you can see for the next 12 hours, like what your chance of rain is. It's, it very much feels like a better adaptation of a phone app than it's ever felt like before. Yeah. Thank God we're getting rid of the everything you need. Just scroll forever and ever on your wrist. That was not good app design. This is better. There's so much less scrolling and yet I use the digital crown a lot more. It's very weird. I don't understand why. This is how they get you, V. It's a revolutionary input device. It's it's the mouse of the <laughs> Apple Watch. <laughs> I'm still scarred by that from the Apple Watch Ultra podcast we did. But it's it actually is more useful and more intuitive to use than it has been because previously I would just be like, "Eh, eh, eh, scrolling. 
And now it's just, it makes more sense to use it as I scroll between the different screens of, of the different watchOS apps. It's, I just can't wait to see what third-party developers are going to do with it because whether or not watchOS 10 does well overall, I think will depend a lot on that because the Apple Watch apps are fine. Like the workout app is basically the same thing. It's just slightly easier to read. But, you know, it, you can just be a lot more creative with how you design the watch. Like the activity app is completely different. The weather app is completely different. And the way I interact with those apps is much more creative and free-flowing than it would have been in the past. So, you know, you know me, I love my focus modes. I'm going to go ham. I'm going to go ham on them. Love it. <laughs> so that's, yeah. But Snoopy watch face. Totally underrated. Okay, well, hard disagree, but we'll we'll save that for another time. This almost <laughs> seems like good news. Is there anything that sucks about watchOS 10? Anything you hate so far? Um, nothing I hate so far. Just like I haven't had as much time as I would like to get into the fitness stuff just because it's mostly cycling. I am a public hazard on a bike. I should not ride a bike. <laughs> so I'm going to rope somebody in to give a more informed opinion on that. And I haven't had a chance to go hiking with it yet. So I can't tell you how good the maps are just yet. But I guess if I were to hate something, I actually don't love the way that they've changed your activity app in the sense that they've grouped your trophies and badges in a slightly different way. And it's kind of obnoxious to me. I don't I don't love it. It's weird. That's one place where I like all the scrolling. I'm like, look at all this cool stuff I did. Oh, it's it's not like it's gone. It's just you just it's like switching between tabs in a mobile app. You just hit something and there it is. And you can scroll a little bit to get more more data. But it's just everything is much faster with less scrolling. Like it just makes sense when you use it. You just have to use it and you'll get what I mean. But it's it's very hard to describe is what I'm learning right now. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, this is good news. This is better than I was hoping for. I was kind of expecting when we came out of WWDC being like, oh, this doesn't seem like all that much, but it sounds like it's it all adds up to something. That's exciting. Yeah. And I'm telling you, you're wrong about the Snoopy one. It adjusts to your day. It's very cool in ways that I did not expect. I don't even like peanuts. I'm not a peanut head. I don't like Snoopy, but I like the, the watch face. It's very strange. You're, you're a data girly, but not a peanut head. This is what we're learning. Yeah. Data girly, not a peanut head. That's me. I like it. All right, V, thank you. All right. Next up, tvOS, the Apple TV. Chris Watch is here. Hi, Chris. Hello. Good to be back. I feel like tvOS is more exciting than it was advertised at WWDC. It turns out there's actually like some stuff going on, right? What have you found so far? Yeah, I agree. This seems to be one of the bigger years for tvOS in quite a while. Uh, there's FaceTime, obviously, which is one of those things that I kind of feel like would have been nice during the pandemic, <laughs> uh, but I guess better late than never. Fair. So that's going to be on there. And I guess Zoom and also WebEx are going to have their apps on Apple TV as well. So that's one of the big ones. Uh, they redid the uh, control center, so it's a lot more dense with information now and shows the stuff you actually want there. Uh, there's like a sleep timer for your TV. If you're one of those people just, you know, nods off during Netflix. There you go. You can have six icons per row now instead of five. And of course, the most important thing is they have a lot more screensavers, those dazzling 4K screensavers. How are the screensavers? Like, I, I don't know if you're joking or not when you say that's the most important thing, but I genuinely believe that is like the most important. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about those screensavers, but there's something. It's those screensavers and it's Roku City on the Roku that yeah. have like really solved the thing where I will just sit and look at my TV and not watch it for long periods of time as a result. Same. Are the new ones up to par with the old ones on, on Apple TV? 
Uh, so the new ones weren't in the first couple betas, so I think those are going to be like a later edition. Uh, I but I can't wait. I'm very excited, like you. I don't know who does those, who's responsible for them, but that should be a story. Yeah, whoever you are, you are, please come on the Vergecast and tell us everything. <laughs> what have you been using that surprised you either in good and bad ways so far? Uh, I mean, the control center is nice. It feels more like the iPhones now. That's easier to get around or get to your your home scenes and your cameras and whatnot or change profiles. So just a lot of like uh, just very small quality of life stuff. I mean, the Apple TV, just like the overall UX and like interface. I'm still a guy who like likes the home screen of apps because mm-hmm. I know where my shows are usually. And I can search if not or go to the TV app and up next and all those things. But yeah, they didn't have to add a lot, I feel like, but they kind of did. Uh, FaceTime, you can do like karaoke and see yourself on the screen now with Apple Sing and all oh, that wow. kind of stuff and even add effects to it. How does the continuity camera stuff work? Have you been able to test it? Yeah. Uh, so you just start a FaceTime session on the TV and then you get like a prompt on your phone right away that asks like, can I use this phone uh, for continuity camera? Uh, just like your Mac, basically. And you say yes and away you go. What's the go-to strategy there? Do you sit on the couch and kind of hold your camera, like hold your phone up to be the camera? Do you prop it up somewhere? Like what's what's the move here? Yeah, I think you got to prop it on a table maybe. I mean, okay. who knows? Maybe they'll sell uh, mounts because they have like all the same stuff, you know, like center stage on those like auto zoom and pan things right. to kind of just focus on you. You can put it pretty much wherever and it should be able to do a decent job just finding you and putting your people on the big screen, uh, which is pretty cool, I must say. Yeah, one of my theories this year is that the iPad is turning into a sneaky, great video conferencing device Mm -hmm. in part, because like you're talking about, you can use it as a continuity camera thing for your TV. You can just set it down in landscape mode on your coffee table and it'll use center stage to follow you around. And I generally think center stage is ridiculous and stupid and bad because no one wants their webcam moving around as they talk (laughs) on a video call. It's just distracting and awful. But in a case like this, it actually makes sense why it would exist because it can kind of solve for some problems that exist. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I'm very happy about that. Any new apps? You mentioned the Zoom and stuff. Like, are there, have you have we heard anything from developers doing stuff for TVOS yet? Any ideas? Not a ton yet. There's more small stuff. Like, there's VPN support now. You can use those right on the Apple TV. So, if you care about security and privacy, uh, like a lot of folks do, that's nice to have. A lot of small things. You can actually find your remote now. Oh yeah. With your iPhone, which is another blessing. There's no U1 chip, so it's not quite as precise as like a AirTag or whatever. But you can, you know, find it easily enough, which is better than before, where you. Just had to say your prayers and go hunt for it. But yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, I'll take it. Is there anything anything you don't like so far? Anything still missing or not working properly? That it, The beta, at least from what I've heard, seems to be pretty solid for folks so far. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a low stakes beta. I mean, it's not the same thing as like putting like iOS 17 on your phone, on your main iPhone or whatever. So if you're going to play around, the TV is a pretty safe environment to do it. But yeah, so far, so good. I'm looking forward to those screensavers and seeing what else comes up over the uh, beta cycle. I like it. Yeah, the control center to me is like a sneaky big deal. Uh, I'm excited that that one has turned out because Apple is desperate to figure out how to make it like the hub of your home in all these interesting ways. And this is a good way to do it that isn't just put more app icons onto your TV screen. And I think that that seems to be they get getting that right. Right. Yeah, it's there if you want it. If you're a power user, it's right there and easy to get to. If you just want to ignore it. You can do that, too, and just do whatever. Yeah, I used an Apple TV for the longest time without realizing Control Center was there at all. And I actually have come around to thinking that's a big win. Like, that's actually how that should work. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, same. (laughs) I like it. All right, Chris, thank you. As always, we'll talk to you again soon. Yes, sir. Cheers. Now let's do iOS 17. Allison Johnson's here. Hi, Allison. Hello. 
you have the hardest job in this particular segment, uh, <laughs> which is just that you have by far the most to talk about because iOS 17, I was just going through the list. There's actually a lot of new stuff. Uh-huh. Let's not get into everything. We have lots of time to get into everything, but you've been using it so far. And the question I'm most curious about is in using the betas, what have you found yourself using that's new most often? Like what has actually sort of crept into your daily life of the new stuff? It's a lot of little things. And I think that's, yeah, there's just a huge laundry list of stuff that's updated like across everything you can imagine. But some things that stick out to me and they're not like glamorous or exciting, but like the updates to the keyboard, you can write a swear word now <laughs> and it doesn't just swoop in there and correct it for you. I have found autocorrect is wrong much less often yeah, than it used yeah. to be. And it might just be anecdotal. I might be paying more attention than normal, but the number of texts that I have sent with autocorrect mistakes has gone way down. Right. I feel like I'm fighting it less where yeah. you're constantly having to go back and be like, oh, no, that's not what I wanted to write. There's like extra little tools in there where it underlines something that it changed. So you're less likely to like send the text and be like, oh my God, I that." Not what I meant to say. Just like little little pleasant things throughout the keyboard that will be hard for anybody to really like identify even or be like, wow, this is a great new experience, but it's just nicer. One that I know we're both fans of is standby. Yes. Which is a delightful little feature where you start charging your phone, turn it sideways, and it turns the display into like a little clock or there's a couple options like a calendar with some widgets. And the idea is you put it on kind of your nightstand and it's there for you when you want to check the time in the middle of the night. It's so nice. I really like it. There's a version of standby that you can basically just use as a photo viewer. And the aspect ratio is not amazing, right? Because you're basically on a like long, short screen, mm -hmm. but it's great. I just set it up to show my photos and I just have a photo viewer that sits there while my phone charges. Yeah. It's awesome. It's so nice. I love that it works with any charger. You can use wired charging, you can use MagSafe, you can use whatever wireless charger you have lying around. That's just like kind of un-Apple and lovely. I know, um, right? Yeah. So thanks, guys. One that surprised me, I was not expecting to like as much as I do, is the new kind of interface for stickers. Okay. Gotta admit, I don't use stickers a lot, but in iOS 17, you can, you know how in iOS 16, you could do those like image cutouts of someone from a photo or... A, yeah, you just long press and it like pulls out yeah. whatever the thing you're talking about is. Yeah. Yeah. Takes it out of the background. Everyone was like, this is cool. What do I do with this? Now you go, there's just an option right there to turn it into a sticker and you can go into your iMessage chat and you can put that sticker all over the chat, like just on any message and it'll show up for everybody where you put it. And you can turn a live photo into a sticker now too. That's awesome. I didn't know that actually is genuinely useful. It's fun. It's like a great new way to annoy your partner, which is why I'm using it. Uh, I'm a big believer in anything that makes it so I can respond to a text message in like two taps. Uh, yeah. Like the tap back stuff is so good for that reason. And having a bunch of stickers where I can just like anytime we're talking about the dog, I can just like press the dog sticker and just boom, there it goes. Love that. Yep. Into that. Uh, what have you seen with the phone call stuff so far? Obviously, this will be easier to see once more people have iOS 17, but there's the contact posters, there's the live voicemail stuff. Any Anything jump out to you in that space so far? 
Yeah, I played with contact posters a little bit. It's very much like the lock screen on iOS 16. Same kind of deal. Did you pick a photo or a memoji for your contact poster? Oh, I did a photo. I can't do a memoji. I don't know. I think I'm too old or not old <laughs> enough. <laughs> like I'm in a middle ground where like <laughs> I missed memojis. But yeah, it's a lot of pressure. It really is a lot of pressure. I spent a long time setting mine up. Yeah, I have like three different ones that I'm like, maybe I'll be on a different mood and I'll pick a different one. So those will be fun. It'll be really interesting to see like who adopts it and what the uptake rate is. It's like everyone going to have a contact poster all at once. So that that one will get, I think, more interesting as the beta rolls out and the full release um, comes. But the live transcription on voicemail, 100% love it. I'm never picking up my phone again. Like <laughs> this is this is what I need. And it, it's, it should mention that. Google Pixel phones do a similar thing mm -hmm. where the assistant will kind of be like, this person is using a screening service. What are you calling about? But I kind of love that Apple is just like, you're just leaving a voicemail <laughs> and then you can just like spy on what they're saying <laughs> as they say it. It is really good. It works surprisingly seamlessly, too. I've mm -hmm. had a couple where I'm just straight up screening calls. It's like being in the 90s again. It's the best. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I had uh, some robot call me about Comcast offers and I was like, see ya. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Anything you haven't liked so far in, in the beta? I've had some pretty real performance and battery issues, which is like normal for a beta. And so I'm not super worried about it. But uh, have you had any anything that's jumped out to you in iOS 17 you don't like so far? Not terrible. I am running it. I've used it a little bit on a 14 Pro, but I have it on my own 13 Mini. So when the battery life is kind of crummy, I'm like, uh, this mm. could be because the battery life is sort of crummy on my phone. But yeah, yeah, just a couple of like bugs and things, you know, as we've observed getting onto threads, like there's some weird bug where you couldn't post a photo but the app would instantly crash every time you tried to post a photo on threads it's yeah great. it was it was fun this is the first thing you do is get in there like i'm gonna post a photo nope yep. <laughs> try it again <laughs> yeah no overall it's been a really positive experience and i'm i'm excited like i'm excited for people to download it and then they can see what i'm talking about because right now i'm just telling my friends like stickers and they're like what yeah, this is that awkward time of year where you're sending people like broken things that they can barely see. <laughs> you're like, look at this sticker. And they're like, what is this tiny image yeah. that you just sent me? I kept trying to put them in Slack and they just look like the grossest little PNGs. <laughs> I was like, you guys have to trust me. It's, it looks cool. All right. Awesome. Well, yeah, there's there's lots more to talk about in iOS 17. So we'll, we'll have to come back to lots of this. But good luck with betas and Godspeed as always. Thank you. The iPad. The last one we should talk about quickly is iPadOS 17, which is the one I've been goofing around with. I have it installed on an iPad mini and an iPad Pro. There are lots of little new things here, most of them borrowed from iOS 16 and 17. So if you use an iPhone, most of the stuff on the iPad will not be surprising. But there are two things on the iPad that I want to mention. The first is the lock screen. iPadOS 17 lets you customize your lock screen, mostly like you can on the iPhone with different fonts and colors and stuff. But you also get a rail of lock screen widgets on the left side, which is super useful. And you can actually fit a lot of widgets there because you just have more screen space. I would much rather have more of them, though, since there's so much screen space here. It's just kind of being unused, putting just the tiny widgets on the left. Give me full-size widgets. Give me the new interactive widgets on iOS and iPadOS. Let me, like, really do stuff from my lock screen. But hey, some widgets is better than no widgets, so I'll take it. The other thing is Stage Manager. 
If you're a longtime VergeCast listener, you know that last year when Stage Manager came out, I hated it. Like, hated it. Stage Manager is the multitasking feature that lets you switch between collections of apps so you can have a few things on the screen at a time, but mostly it's buggy and bad and pointless. I don't know. I don't get it. But this year, Apple did make some big improvements, and I still don't think it's great, but I at least see the potential. The big change is that you can now move apps more or less freely around the screen. They can be almost any size and go almost anywhere on your iPad instead of just having to fit into these predetermined slots like before. That alone makes it feel much more like actual multitasking and makes Stage Manager way more useful. If you're the kind of person who uses their iPad with a mouse and keyboard and external monitor, Stage Manager really is for you. It's a decent system for managing multiple apps on multiple screens, and it's a lot better now than it was. But it's still just awkwardly implemented on the iPad. You can't command tab between stages. You can only have four apps in a stage. You can only have one app in a single stage. And you can't save stages as they are. So everything just kind of ends up awkward and strewn about unless you set up your stages and then never, ever change them or download new apps or anything. It's just still too much work for not that much gain, I think. I still don't plan to keep using Stage Manager, but I do at least think there's maybe a future in the idea as Apple figures out ways to integrate it more and more with the rest of the iPad. I still don't plan to keep using Stage Manager, but I at least think there's maybe a future in the concept as Apple keeps working to integrate it better and better with the rest of the iPad. Otherwise, on the iPad, there's a health app now, which is nice, and iPadOS 17 actually does make the iPad maybe the best PDF editing device I've ever used. It actually automatically detects all the fields you can fill in, and you can either just type or scribble to fill it out. It's awesome. But mostly, you know, the iPad is the iPad is the iPad. All right, we got to take a break, and then we're going to come back and talk about how we talk about AI. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back. One of the weird things that has happened over the last, let's say, nine months is that all kinds of AI terms have found their way into our vocabulary. GPT, LLM, transformers, hallucinations, all these things that no reasonable human knew about before are just words we use now. But are we using them the right way? And does it matter how we use them as we talk about AI and as AI changes so fast? I can't stop thinking about this. So I called up The Verge's James Vincent to help me sort it out. Hi, James. Hi, David. How are you doing? I'm good. You're now three days into book leave on a very mysterious book that you're not willing to tell anyone about. Uh, how's it going? Do you miss us terribly already? I miss you terribly. I wake up every day. I see things in my feeds, in my Twitter follows. I genuinely have been lurking on Slack. I've had this is so terrible. James, I've had Slack no. open. I'm already regretting somewhat my decision to take leave, but I'm I'm trying to make predictions. Write some stuff down now. What I think is going to happen the rest of the year, and then six months time, I'll check in and be like, oh, did was that right? Was that wrong? Once you finish that list come back on the show. I, we, we should do that in public so we can shame you for this. <laughs> but the reason I've dragged you here today is mm. because I want to talk about how we talk about AI. And I've been thinking about this for a while, but this was really sparked for me listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago where they had this otherwise very interesting conversation about AI, but kept talking about it in just the worst ways. And it was talking about like when you do something with the AI and it just, mm. it makes me cringe every time that happens. And then I've been reading all this stuff and we're using all these terms like AI and machine learning and LLMs and chat GPT and chat bots. And all this stuff just becomes so sort of interchanged to the point of being meaningless. So what mm. I want to do here with you, my my British pedantic friend, is <laughs> try and sort this out a little bit. Because I actually think it's really important. We're in this moment where this stuff is moving really fast and it's so transformative that I actually think the way we talk about it matters. And so I want to just not exactly like define terms, but I want to just sort of think through how we talk about this stuff. Does that sound good? Is that a good plan? Yeah, perfect. Love to, love to be pedantic. I love it. So let's just literally start with the term AI, which is a thing uh. we force ourselves to use and have to use all the time. It gets used for everything. It is it is like so broadly defined as to be almost sort of meaningless now. Mm. It's not quite a technical term because it's like to, to call something the AI is to refer to like the code, which is just not how we talk about things. But I am curious, like as you think about what you mean when you say AI at this point, both for you as a reporter reporting on this stuff and for you as just a person in the world living with this stuff, where does it fit into kind of your vocabulary correctly? You're completely right in that the definition of AI is so diffuse as to be sort of useless. It is such a broad term and it applies to so many different uh, specific applications, technological methods, ideas, concepts, that it's very difficult to say what it is. What I like to do is not think about necessarily what the strict definition is, but think about how we use it in terms of 
how it fits into other frameworks and how we think about it conceptually. So you mentioned just now, one of the things you dislike is talking about the AI, like the AI did this, the AI did that. I hate that too. You know, I, I've spoken to Verge staff people about this and I, I, I try to sort of give a Verge framework on it. And there's no official policy, but one of my big no-nos for covering AI is anthropomorphizing the AI. And that involves turning it into this discrete entity that happens when you use the grammatical form, the AI, an AI, AI did this. So I, I don't really mind the term. I know some people, some researchers are really critical of it. And they're like, you know, they put artificial in, and intelligence in, in inverted commas, and they, you know, they really hate seeing it used. And I, I respect that as a viewpoint, but it is not the one I think is the right approach, because I think there has to be a language for people who are non-experts to talk about this stuff. And AI has become the phrase we use. Fine, let's just go with it. If we've accepted it is the phrase we use, then what becomes important is, yes, as I say, how we conceptualize it. So we don't want to anthropomorphize it. We don't want to give it agency when it has none. So we can, I think we can talk about AI as much as we like. We can talk about what people are doing with it. But that is the thing. Yeah, we need to remember how it is being used and who is ultimately responsible for it. You know, there's that great, it's been a bit of a meme on Twitter for a while a presentation card from an IBM sort of slideshow given to management in the 1970s. This is a great old looking presentation card, old sort of courier type font being used. And it says, machines must never make a management decision because machines can't be held responsible for management decisions, something like that. Mm. I think something similar applies to AI in that we may say casually AI is doing that or AI is doing this, but we need to remember who put those systems in place, who bears responsibility. You know, we live in a society where machines cannot be responsible, humans can be responsible. And if there is to be justice, if there is to be, you know, a, a sort of fair, a fair society to live in, then we need to remember the humans at the heart of it, not AI. So that's a, that's a terribly conceptual <laughs> over-the-top approach to that question. But in short, I don't think definitions matter so much as the context that you put those terms in. Yeah, no, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think we, as we talk about the AI, I've come to think of it as sort of synonymous with like the technology, that it's, it's yeah. a thing that you use if you don't sort of immediately further define it. You're just telling on yourself as somebody who doesn't understand what the hell you're talking about. Because what it is, is like technology is not a thing. It's an umbrella term for lots of things, right? And I think mm. AI is the same way. Like AI is not a thing, but it is it is a category of things. But if you're going to talk mm. about it, you have to then talk about the more specific things right away or else... I'm just going to assume you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I agree with you. You, you, you. It's fine. You can use the term and maybe you're against using the term. No, I, I'm actually with you in the sense that I think there are lots of interesting arguments to have been made a very long time ago about whether yeah. artificial and intelligence are the right words. At this point, I think it's like the, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It almost doesn't matter. Yeah. That just is the term. And I think my hope would be that we kind of get to the point where AI is like, it's like SAT or MTV in that kind of the original definition gets lost and an AI just means AI. <laughs> and we all kind of know what it means, but artificial and intelligence doesn't really matter anymore. But again, I yeah. think I'm with you in the sense that like the time to have had that debate was a long time ago and it's over and it really doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, that I think there is one argument to make perhaps that AI is in many ways a fitting term in that it is as diffuse as the entity it describes in the world. And it also reflects and embodies grammatically the problems we have talking about AI. You know, AI is a difficult thing to describe because it is so multiformed. It has so many different variations. 
And in a way, just doing what we're doing now, I'm going to give both of us a big pat on the back right now. There we go. <laughs> you know, talking about this stuff is useful. It puts it in context. People think about it in you. Obviously, the, the you know, the, the worst, not the worst sin, but uh, uh, the sin with using words every time you use them, no matter what you're talking about them, is using them thoughtlessly and not thinking about the words you're using. Um, and I think if we think about them, we're okay. AI can be okay. I like it. On the AI front, the the other one that I have come across a bunch in trying to report about this is AI versus machine learning. And I think yeah. they get used interchangeably in part because I think machine learning is perceived to be the less kind of magical sounding version of it. It's like if you want to make AI seem real, you just call it machine learning. But that's not quite the right distinction, I don't think. Where do you draw the line between those things? Are they synonymous with one another? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that like there are distinctions to be made. So you could um, distinguish between machine learning methods and stuff like expert systems methods, which you know were based on creating AI. Both of them fall under the AI category, but were more about structuring and sort of hard coding the rules that were being used in these systems. And expert systems had a vogue decades ago, and you know what well, they're still they're still used now in many places. It's not it's not fair to say they've gone out of use, but it's been overtaken by the learning, quote unquote, learning methods, the deep learning methods, the right. machine learning methods, which are more reliant on letting letting systems, you know, uh, learn on their own, not on their own, but, you know, uh, look at data and find rules in there under the guidance of humans. I think machine learning as it's used generally now is just like being a little bit more fussy, a little bit more, <laughs> as you say, a little, no, a little bit more correct as well to be like, well, let's just take some of the, let's just take some of the energy out of the room. Let's take some of the hype out of the room and call it machine learning instead. Yeah. It's when you want to remind people that this isn't some fake thing that's happening. It's yeah. just... It's just you're you're just letting machines do things for you. It's a reminder that like this is just a thing that happens on a computer. It's fine. Yeah, but arguably it's also sort of inflationary in terms of what it uh, what it draws our expectations from. You know, you talk about machines, you think about physical machines. You don't often think about software. That's one mistake, and that plays into AI myths. You talk about learning, and then you imagine an autonomous system that is able to read and uh, engage with and analyze information in the same way as a human does. But that's a poor elision of terms as well, because conceptually these things work very, very differently, you know. And then you have the sort of self-directed aspect of learning. And then we've had this wonderful piece up on the site last week, Josh Jezer, this fantastic piece looking at the huge amount of human labor that goes into it. Yep. Is that machine learning? If you need to employ thousands, tens of thousands of people around the world to click on pictures of fire hydrants in captures day <laughs> after day, you know, is that machine learning or is that human rulemaking turned into machine decision making? So yeah, machine learning is to all intents and purposes, the less hyped way of saying AI. But again, I think defining the term is perhaps less important than the context within which you use them and talking about these other parts of, of the systems. Right. Yeah, I found myself trying to use machine learning less unless I am specifically referring to a type of system that is machine learning. Yeah. Because it is a thing that has a sort of strict, simple definition in how it is used in some of these systems. And I think I've definitely fallen under the trap of using machine learning as as the less sexy term for AI. And I'm trying not to do that because I think it's unhelpful sometimes. What would you give as the definition for machine learning? I, I think it's it's what you said at the beginning, right? It is it is right. the these automated systems by which a huge amount of training data is fed in 
and algorithms run and they learn what fire hydrants look like, right? And I think, yeah. in frankly, in my world, mostly covering products, I have very little actual reason to use machine learning as a term. So I'm just trying to use it less and less, right? It's, it's mm. I think you're right to say it is more useful as a way of talking about how these systems are built than the actual output of these systems. Yeah. Which brings me to my next question. And this is the one that I have struggled with the most as a reporter, mm. which is... Terms like LLM, large language model, and GPT, which is generative pre-trained transformers. These are things that if you had asked me a year ago, would I ever use these terms in a story? I would have said, no, you're, you're insane. Absolutely not. Never. And all at once, these feel like they have become like mainstream terms. I don't think anybody knows what GPT stands for, but I think everyone has heard the phrase chat GPT now, and it's just kind of in the lexicon now. And I find myself wondering, like, are we good with this? Like, like, are we just going to, are we going to get to a point where I can just say LLM and assume most of our audience and most of the people in the world know what I'm talking about? I mean, yeah, the, these, you know, oh God, this is a lovely conversation about language. I love the, I love these sort of <laughs> discussions. I'm sorry to be so discursive in them, but you know, I am very much a descriptivist when it comes to language. Uh, word, I, uh, words are what we say they are and they are the context they're used within. GPT, you're right, has become this completely denatured term. You know, I, I made a joke when I um, had my last day that you guys were going to train a language on model on all my articles right. and you'd obviously replace me in my absence. And I was, oh yeah, it'll be called James GPT. And GPT is a sort of suffix now just means a program you talk to. Totally. It just means like a, a, a chatty program, which is very unusual. And LLM is another one in that, you know, the large in it is completely subjective as a value in that the importance of having a large language model as opposed to a small one. No, you know, no one you can speak to in AI will give you a clear cutoff about what makes the difference between a large and a small one, especially as, you know, scales go up and down and size itself, which is, you know, we measure a number of parameters, the connections within the model has sort of become more and less important. You know, there was this, obviously there was this push where you would scale it up and we just got larger and larger models. And now it's sort of going the other way and there are different methods of training them using fewer parameters. Um, so maybe the large isn't important at all. And actually, I think there's probably a good argument there to get rid of large and just call them language models. Mm. And that is, to me, usefully generalised as an approach. The underlying methodology is advancing and mutating so rapidly that any term, any descriptive term, GPT or otherwise, is bound to become uh, obsolete in a matter of months. But I think GPT will hang on because it's become a marketing term. And like AI, the point at which something becomes a marketing term, you know, you may as well give up on a technical definition. And then it just becomes about, well, what type of story are you trying to tell? What information do you need to give to your reader? whoever they may be. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like ChatGPT, Neelai has said this in the past, he just thinks it's an awful name. Oh, it's objectively a horrendous <laughs> product name. One of the things you're making me realize with all of this is that we kind of don't have middle-sized terms in AI right now. We either have these like incredibly small descriptive things like large language model and machine learning or GPT, or we just call it AI, mm. right? And there's like nothing in between. And I wonder if the thing in between is like, we'll end up just calling it software because fundamentally it's just software created in a different way. And like, we're pretty comfortable just calling things software at this point. But it does occur to me that even as I'm describing this stuff, like I don't have an answer to if I'm not just going to refer to it as a large language model powered chatbot, which is messy and I think not how we should talk about this stuff forever. All I call it is AI and that's too much. And I, so I wonder, like we're, we're sort of stuck between these two poles for now. And, and I wonder if our, our vocabulary needs some stuff in the middle. 
I think that's a really good point. I, I think something about the dilemma you're describing is due to where we are in the product cycle. You know, I've, I've been covering AI for not too long, five, six years or something like that now. And before this last year, the amount of products I talked about was fairly small. And, you know, I, it used to be a thing where I would some archive paper would be going around with some new sort of GAN technique involved with image synthesis generation, whatever it was. And we'd write, we'd write that up and we'd talk about whatever the specific name for that neural network architecture was. But we would never really be important again. And the realized was, was there was no continuity to those stories. That mm. term, you know, unless it became a very successful model or approach like GAN itself, which started off as this, you know, obscure, well, not obscure, you know, it became very popular very quickly, but in terms of public knowledge, obscure term. And then, you know, I think a few, many of our listeners would recognize the term GAN and know it has something to do with image generation. But my story, my point is that when we cross over from the research stage to the product stage, A, the idea of marketing gets involved and how you sell it, but B, you have these now narratives about these technologies and that takes on a life far apart from um, the research itself. And some terminology sticks around. I think a really interesting example is um, hallucinations. Mm, yeah. So hallucinations, for listeners who are not aware, is a sort of name given to essentially the mistakes made by language models. You know, you give them a question and they come up with an answer that is, you know, not derived from anything directly in their training data, derived from the patterns within it, but it's wrong in some way. It's factually incorrect. And a lot of scientists, a lot of researchers dislike the term hallucination because they think it implies a, a mental model that is akin to a human mind. Humans hallucinate. Conscious beings hallucinate. Machines do not hallucinate. They just make mistakes. But I think that's a really interesting example of how a term that starts off as something within the research world then takes on this greater meaning because it happens to describe something that is very common to people using these products. And I love your suggestion that we need more middle terms but I think, again, another reason for this, apart from the fact that we're in the sort of productization stage of this development cycle, is that actually a lot of attention is being focused on a relatively small uh, zoo of different technical animals, as it were. You know, a lot of it comes down to language models. The differences between them, if we want to talk about, you know, specific structures with how they're trained, is really just not relevant to the general uh, population. You know, if we're talking about the difference between how GPT-3, 3.5 and 4 were trained, we're talking about transformer heads and all this sort of stuff, tension heads. I've definitely got one of those terminologies wrong. I apologize. You know, this is what I mean. Like, but a lot yeah. of that stuff is really not relevant unless you are, you know, you're sitting in a data center somewhere or not sitting in a data center. You're just trying to train this stuff yourself. Right. Are there particular areas of AI that you think we are deficient in language to describe that we're missing terminology? I think you're right that right now we're doing an okay job just because there aren't that many things to do. But the thing that catches me the most, the two things everybody thinks about with AI are sort of generative image platforms. Yeah. And I think that's a slightly messy term, but is at least kind of understandable, right? It's like use AI to make new art out of nothing. I can sort of understand what that is. I suspect we'll have pretty good vocabulary for that pretty fast. And then the other one is the chatbots. And I actually think chatbots is like a fine term for that. It's It, it yeah. may not be perfect, but it works and everybody kind of understands what it is. And that's the other side of things. The one where I get tripped up is like, I feel like I read a hundred press releases every day that a company is like, we put AI into our product. And I'm just like, what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and and to me, it's like, it, I just read that now. It's like, we put technology into our product. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, 
congratulations. <laughs> like, I don't know. Did we, did, is that anything? And so I think, and that's where I get to the point where it's like, okay, I think we, we might just need more words for this. Mm. And maybe what'll happen is we'll get to the point where this stuff is just sort of unsexy enough that we don't talk about it. It's like, it's like talking about like you added a new file to your code base. Like it's, that's nothing. True. Right. And this was back when everybody was saying like, we're all in on web three. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And they're yeah. like, we don't know either. And so maybe this is just kind of how the hype cycle works, but it does feel to me like we just need a larger set of ways to talk about what it means to put some of these tools into your product, because what you're yeah. not doing is putting chat GPT or an image generator into your product. And if you're not doing either of those things, we need a third thing to call it. Uh, and I just don't know what that is yet, but okay. I have, I have two more things. I have two more terms I'm going to throw at you and then I'm going to let you go here. Sure. One is where are we on spicy autocomplete as a descriptor for some of this AI stuff? I've been seeing this for months. I loved it at first. I like it less and less over time, but I want to know what you think. Okay. So, I mean, I think this is a, a, again, a fascinating example of the limits, the benefits, the drawbacks of certain terms. So autocomplete as a way of describing language models and their abilities. I actually I tweeted about this a few a few months ago because I was trying to I was trying to work out where the term fast first started getting applied to these. And I actually I think it was Robin Sloan. I don't know if you know him mm-hmm. at all. He is an author. He wrote Sourdough, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, but he also has a fantastic newsletter he does and he's very like involved in technology. He's done like a, he's got a side music project that uses AI. You know, he's been experimenting with these tools for ages. His was the first instance I could find of it being applied to language models. And I think it was like 2016, 2017, something like that, a while ago. Then, of course, it became attached to essentially criticisms of these models. I mean, and particularly the, the, the Stochastic Parrots paper, I think, did a lot about connecting these things. And because it got attached to criticisms of these models, it's then become a somewhat politicized term within AI communities. And if you use it, it can put you in camps in people's mind, camps of political or ideological belief or thought. So it's a very, it's a very interesting term. And you know, if you if you're someone who derides language models as just fancy autocomplete or whatever it is, some people in the AI community who, let's just say, um, you know, are, are more likely to believe in existential risk problems, for example, will be quite dismissive, or they can be quite dismissive, because they'll think you don't fully understand the qualities that these systems have. And the thing is, I think it was a really useful term for a long time. It was a really useful way of quickly explaining, um, communicating, sorry, the abilities of these systems and also something about the way they're trained. You know, it, it is a statistical predictor. That is definitely true. The, the problem with the term, and I'm still, I don't have a decision. I haven't, you know, made a decision in my head about this, is that it doesn't quite convey to people now the full capabilities of these systems, which you know, you get something like the famous Sparks of AGI paper, the one that came out from the Microsoft Research. And I say famous, also very controversial. A lot of people disagree with the contents, the conclusions of that paper, which was basically saying that GPT-4 had abilities in it which were not adequately described by our current mental models of language models. And it was something perhaps closer to, as the title suggests, Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence. And I haven't come down and decide on that. I still think autocomplete is a useful term in many contexts when talking about language models, but it's also sort of lacking now because it does underplay the fantastic breadth of capabilities that these systems have and the fact that there may be, you know, aptitudes within them 
that just don't apply to our model of what autocomplete software does. So I think it's a term that we're going to see phased out in the years to come because it's been slightly lacking. Or perhaps it's a term that's going to become increasingly politicized and that using it will align you with one or other political camp of beliefs or research camps of belief. But a really fascinating term. Do you do you like it still, Spicy Autocomplete? I liked it at first because I think it's a really helpful kind of kindergarten level understanding of what's actually going on. Right. Like it's because everyone, everyone has had that experience and you type something and it throws up the three options and sometimes they're insane and sometimes they're great. And it's like, that is not a terrible metaphor for what's happening in a lot of these systems. I think it's becoming an incomplete enough metaphor as to not be useful very, very, very quickly. So I, I kind of like it less over time. And I agree. I think the way that people use it has gotten People are either very dismissive when they use it or very dismissive of people who use it. And I think both of those are kind of annoying. And for that reason alone, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something else. But as a, as a first run at making this stuff really understandable to people, I think it kind of worked. It, it, it got yeah. us, it got us yeah. six months of decent metaphors. So I, I'm not mad at it. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad to hear we're staking out the radical centrist ground here, absolutely. David. We're annoyed by bo- people on both sides of this argument. <laughs> I'm really, the, the Vergecast's official position is everybody should just calm down for five minutes, I think. Uh, <laughs> and, but here's, here's one I suspect you and I uh, will aggressively agree, agree on, and then we can go, okay. which is the, the term magic to describe AI like oh, in God. magic eraser and magic editor and magic whatever that needs to die in a fire as quickly as possible right like yeah. we got to stop with the magic there's no magic here i'm done with this there's no magic we're good on this well, right well but you know oh, no, when James, you deliver do a product <laughs> david david <laughs> no. listen to me listen to me for a second dave when you deliver a product that uplifts your customer's heart, <laughs> that brings delight to them. When they get rid of that obnoxious pug dog that was leering at them in that family <laughs> photo in the background, is that not magic? Is that not a type of wizardry, of sorcery? No, you, you, sorry. Did Johnny Ive just come into your room? Where, how did that <laughs> That was amazing. Terrible. Um, yeah, but, but the context you've just described it within, a purely marketing context. So I think people already know that magic is bullshit, for want of a more polite term. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Hopefully it stays that way. (laughs) All right, James, you got a book to write. We need to take a break, but thank you as always. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right, we got to take one more break, and then we're going to come back and talk about all the video games we cannot wait to play. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. So usually the gaming world has a couple of big moments a year, with the E3 conference, usually in June, being the biggest by far. But E3 is no longer. 
So instead, we've had a string of announcements from Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, Ubisoft, there was the Summer Game Fest, and a bunch of others, all detailing what's coming to a console and computer near you. This year is actually a big year for games, it turns out, and it's a lot to keep up with. So I asked The Verge's Ash Parrish and Polygon's Chris Plant to come on the show and tell me all the new stuff that they're most excited about. Ash, hi. Hi, great to be back. It's good to have you back. And speaking of coming back, Chris Plant, welcome back to The Vergecast. It's been a while. Hi, thank you. It's been uh, six years, seven years. Obviously, you missed me. Um, and you're just so happy to have me. Listen, you were just here. I don't know. I, I opened up the link and you were just here. And, and we're just rolling with it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the way we wanted to do this is basically there's been a lot of video game announcements. There was no E3, so there was no one like moment for video games. Instead, it's been the summer of video games. And I just want to like rattle through some of the coolest stuff that people have been talking about. So the way we set this up is the the homework we each had is we each had to come with two games that we are excited to play this summer. Um, ideally, brand new games, but if you want to cheat on that one, I'll allow it. And then two games you're excited about coming this fall. So games you can't play yet, but will before the end of the year. Are you guys prepared? Are you ready? Does this sound like a plan? This sounds like a tentative plan. I think we're going to maybe be okay. This is the Verge cast. Maybe be okay is the best we're ever going to do. Great. Let's start with this summer, and we'll just we'll just go around in circles here. So, Ash, you go first. What's the first game you're excited about this summer? So my first pick is Baldur's Gate 3. I am really excited about this game. It has been in early access for about forever. I remember the first time it went to like early access and I got to play like an early build of it. And I've never played the Baldur's Gate games before. I kind of really haven't dabbled with like the the Dungeons and Dragons games that have been, you know, made into video games. But Baldur's Gate was like the first time I had an experience with a game like that. And I loved it. It was really fun. I got such a kick out of not like doing anything for like my class. I think I played like a paladin or something like that. I don't remember if that's not one of the classes. Don't don't at me on that. But I got more fun out of like pushing people off of things and lighting them on fire than I did doing anything else that was like class based because they just do so much damage. And it's so much fun being a little chaos gremlin that like pushes people off buildings and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to see what a full version of that game looks like, especially because there's romances and I haven't had a good game with romance in it since Mass Effect 3. So I'm really excited to get back into that like real crunchy CRPG type experience that has like 50 million lines of voice dialogue and 20 million different things that you can do. I am jazzed about that. I love that. Chris, any feelings about Baldur's Gate? I mean, I'm just intimidated, you know, intimidated Mm. by what it could do to me if I allow myself (laughs) to enjoy a game like that, because it's definitely one of those games that you start playing. I'm like, you know, I'll put 20 hours into it. That's a reasonable amount of time to play a video game. And then 300 hours later, you're like, what did I do? (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, and and that's not to say that's a bad use of time. It just uh, it it slips away. I I played a little bit of Divinity Original Sin 2. Same kind of game. And um, yeah, it it was definitely that thing where I thought I had only played for 10 hours and it had been about 40 or 50. Yeah, that feeling of, oh, God, I cannot afford to lose my life to this game is a running theme through all of my picks, which you will see (laughs) very shortly. But uh, Chris, what's your first one? What are you excited about this summer? 
So I'm I'm cheating and I'm using California summertime, which mm. means it goes to the end of October and hasn't started yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, definitely correct. <laughs> um, so there is a week in October that has like three huge releases, and I'll be picking two from them. One of them is just a very old video game, which is the Metal Gear Solid Master Collection, yes. coming out on October 24th. Okay, are we giving you that first? That feels like a st- October 24th is a stretch. I said the end of October. I, I created the <laughs> rules and then I used the rules. That's, that's how true. this game works. You were just here when I clicked the link, man. That's all. That's all I know. <laughs> Here's why it matters. There are a bunch of like flashier games coming out. Metal Gear Solid is one of the most important video game franchises in the history of the medium. Mm-hmm. And you effectively cannot play it right now. Legally. Hmm. And that is absolutely absurd. There was a documentary at Tribeca Film Festival about Hideo Kojima. He has new games coming out with Death Stranding 2. And yet, if you wanted to go play Metal Gear Solid or Metal Gear Solid 2 or 3 or any of the original games, good luck. You will need to go get an original system because they're no longer available on Windows PC. Uh, They used to be on good old games. And they're not on modern consoles. It doesn't make sense how hard it is to play these games, and this this isn't exclusive to Metal Gear, uh, but I think it is kind of the shining example of video games' terrible habits of erasing or legally blocking out its past. And I am very glad that this is going to become available. And then everybody can play it and realize, you know what, Death Stranding is actually a better game than all of them. So. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's, uh, that's big. Yeah. And this is, is it the whole collection coming to basically all of the major platforms? So this is Metal Gear Solid's 1, 2, and 3. Okay. Um, and some, I believe, like the NES or... Metal Gear, not the Solid, just Metal yes, Gear. Yes, thank you. Mm. Thank you. But sadly, I do not think Metal Gear Solid for the Game Boy Color is part of this, despite being a delightful game. And Metal Gear Solid 4 and 5 are not on this, though. I think it's pretty safe to assume that there will be a sequel collection in the next year or two uh, to make sure that people can buy those, too. And then he's and, and Kojima's very busy getting all his stuff to work on a Mac, so it's gonna it's it's all gonna be very <laughs> exciting. It's all coming up Metal Gear. <laughs> all right, my first pick is comparatively very small. It's the new Mario Kart DLC for the Nintendo Switch, Wave Five. Mario Kart is the only game I can play for any amount of time, whenever, for any reason, and be very happy about it. It's a very good appointment game. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, you can just sit down, pop in, have like a bespoke 20-minute experience, get everything, like experience an entire gameplay loop and stop, and you don't have to worry about falling behind or anything like that. Mario Kart is a perfect game for that. And the thing that they've done really well is I feel like every Mario Kart game before, I feel like I've sort of played through, and then it gets a little bit repetitive and I have to kind of take a break and go, but they're, they're doing these waves at just the right cadence where it's like, oh, I have a new character that kind of makes everything feel new. And then, oh, there's a new course that makes everything feel kind of new. And this one, there's a a handful of new characters and it's going to give me endless reasons to play this game a lot more. You buried the lead. Kamek is one of the new characters. And this is huge in the plant house because (laughs) my five-year-old thinks Kamek is the star of Mario. He's very misguided. You know what? I would believe that. If I had not ever played Mario, if I didn't know what Mario was, I would 100% believe that because this is a guy that comes in on like the cloud, right? He's Bowser's Herald, right? This is the first person who shows up and is like given this like outsized importance. He is is talking to you. I would 100% believe that. Your your kid is 
100% right. And you can tell him I said that. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of deep, honestly. Like I was about to come out firing about how wrong that opinion is, but I think you might be right. I take it back. All right, Ash, what's your next one for the summer? Ghost trick. Oh. Ghost trick is a switch game. It's kind of like like a like a Phoenix Wright kind of game where you go through and you have to like solve mysteries and things like that. And it has this weird mechanic where like you're a ghost and you have to stop people's untimely deaths and you have like these weird Rube Goldberg like device way of going about that. And I'm looking forward to getting into that because that looks like a fun nifty little game that'll scratch that uh, Ace Attorney itch. I had not seen this before and I'm looking at it now and also has this amazing kind of retro animation style that I'm very into. Yeah. Yeah. For people who want to try it right now, it's on iOS and yeah, it is a delight. All right. Well, I'm going to have there. There goes my summer. Chris, what's your second one? I'm going to follow the rules this time. My pick is myhouse.wad or myhouse.wad. And it is a mod for Doom. Oh. And I'm just targeting the Verge audience. <laughs> Wait, tell me everything about this. I don't know about this. It is an absolutely bonkers mod that in the canon of the forum post where it was published, two friends were making it in 1999. And then they grew apart. And more recently, one of those friends passed away. So the friend who is still alive found this mod that they were working on and decided to like, touch it up and just release it out onto the world and it is just their house it is Aww. it is the, the passway friend's home that is not the mod at all <laughs> and you should keep playing it um oh. it is a very different thing and it is it is the kind of like prize you know nesting doll toy is it inscription is it like inscription i mean as somebody who didn't like inscription oh, after no. the first act i would say it's better than inscription oh you know what that's okay i admire inscription a lot i think the the first third of that game is is fantastic but i think what this is doing is i hate doing the lynchian thing because that is such a meaningless comparison but it is not trying to ascribe a meaning to every decision that it makes it is i think a lot looser and more playful than that which is why it's a mod and not a retail game because it probably would make a total of five dollars <laughs> but instead just show up for random insanity and see what happens yeah i love that i do really appreciate it. i'm just reading about this now and one of the things that says is are you expecting to battle demons yes this will happen but first you must uncover the secrets of what seems to just be a suburban house yes <laughs> that sounds amazing that does sound amazing especially because this is in doom sold i'm in i will play this can i give you like one little spoilery thing this sure is like no story or anything there is a point in the game where you come across two dogs and one of the dogs is like a three-headed hell beast with like borderline infinite health and the other dog is like a cute puppy with like two health. And whichever one you kill, it kills the other. And that's the only way to move on. Oh, no. <laughs> Which really puts a like choice on your platter. Wow. It, yeah, it's like, I, it's not even a trolley problem. It's just an awful problem. Uh, I swear the game is not that dark in general. Uh, but that, that certainly, um, yeah, it, it leaves a, a funky taste in the, uh, in the palate. Yeah, real real summer vibes coming out of that one. <laughs> My pick, because unlike the two of you, I followed the rules, is out now. And it is F123, the racing game. Oh, wow. Specifically because... Well, A, I love racing games, as you can tell from my two picks so far. Uh, and I like them because I can just like sit down for 10 minutes and do it 
like in between things or go somewhere else. Like the main thrust of my life right now is I have a six month old kid. So I get like 15 free minutes at various times. And I'm like, I'm going to sit. I had a friend who bought me a steering wheel for these games and I love them. But F123 has this new mode called F1 World, which is basically for anyone who's ever played like 2K or like FIFA Ultimate Team. It's one of those where you get to just like build up your team and you play over time. And instead of just like beating the game over and over and over again, which most of these games just make you do in career mode, this one you can just like hang out in the world and keep racing and getting better and doing new things, which again, for me, will keep me interested much longer than just like trying to kind of achieve the same goals over and over again. And people seem to really like F1 World, so I'm very excited about it. Have you you gotten into many of these? This always just seems so intimidating. Intimidating not in the I'll get sucked in forever, more intimidating in the like, where do I even start? Yeah. The challenge I have with these games is that if I don't get in early, Mm -hmm. I'm so far behind everybody else. Like I've been playing sports video games for a very long time. I'm like pretty good at most sports video games. But I just don't grind like the people who grind. And I think this is true of sort of any competitive, like, pay-to-win game to some extent. There's just, like, people with credit cards who are just, like, buying their way to the top of all of these things. So I've had to learn to just have a very zen approach, and I lose most of the time, and it's basically fine. And I just, like, tell myself stories about these all being teenagers with their parents' credit cards who are beating me, and I'm morally superior to them. I had lunch at a friend's house last night, and he is the person who is always beating you in this game. Yeah, I had no idea. These friends, they uh, build decks, and I didn't even know that they liked video games because they never have talked about video games. And then he uh, showed me his garage, and he's like, oh, by the way, I do play one video game. I play F1, and here's like a steel rig I built. Oh, boy. Like a like full, like, <laughs> it's like half their garage. And it's like, oh, this is who... This is who plays this game. Yeah. It's like uh, fighting game fans. They're like that hardcore. I bought a steering wheel and like anchored it to my desk. And I thought that was like very impressive. And then, and then I had the same experience. People are like, here's the $10,000 rig with three giant wraparound screens that I got. And I was like, oh, you're going to, you're going to beat me in all of our races, aren't you? One of the things that I remember most about attending Summer Games Fest last year was they had this like rig set up. I don't even remember what game it is now and I feel bad where you kind of like it mimics sitting in an F1 car. So it's really low to the ground on the floor. Like you're fully like recumbent mm-hmm. and you use like your feet to press the pedals and everything. And it like the, it had a line like really long for people to try it out. And I just was so intimidated for trying it out because Summer Games Fest or at least what it was last year was like it's this open space where all these game demos are so people are like walking around and you've got like twitch influencers on those like little standing like Roomba things where they have like a Roomba attached to like a screen so like influencers who are not there can walk around the floor and like look and like oh this is cool you know that kind of stuff and there were so many people there with like cameras and stuff and I was just so super intimidated of getting in that thing and looking like an idiot that's so I never tried it even though I was deathly curious about it and that's one of my bigger regrets Those games are tough. They do a better job now of making the racing simulators a little more sort of approachable to get into. But like they're so accurate at this point that every time I play one of these games, I sit down and the very first thing I do is crash my car like 30 to 60 times. So you're saying they don't send 30 streamers to your house with video cameras to shame you. No. (laughs) Great, 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 great. I'm on board now. All right. Let's shift and go to this fall which I guess for Chris Plant means the months of November and December. Yeah. But any any game that's not out yet or won't be out until the end of the summer, we'll, we'll say is fair game here. Ash, what's your first one? 
So this is what I was holding on to from the previous segment. Thing that I'm looking forward to the most that is supposed to come out by the end of 2023 is Sonic Superstars. Big, huge Sonic fan. I was jazzed as hell to see that they're making another 2D Sonic platformer. I'm not really a big fan of the 3D Sonic platforms, uh, Sonic Frontiers broke my heart famously because it was like I was so excited for this game and then I played it and it was just like such a mess in terms of how they implemented systems that it it literally broke my heart like because I wanted to like this game so bad so I'm really excited to see that you know even though Sega won't give me Sonic Mania 2 they'll give me Sonic Superstars which you know I consider that a fair trade so I'm really excited to get back into like these 2.5 2.5 2D side-scrolling Sonic platformers because those are just fantastic, perfect games in every way, and I can't get enough of them. I almost picked this one, too. I'm very excited about this. And I was trying to think, when was the last really great Sonic game? I feel like it's been a really long time since true Sonic mm. fans have had a real winner. Sonic Mania was 2017. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is this is the controversial thing amongst like Sonic fans. We're a, we're a Sonic house out here, and the truth is, you could both say that there have never been good ones, because going back and playing Sonic 1 and Sonic 2 and Sonic 3, they're designed to be headaches. The pleasure of the game is to, like, get a your speed going right mm-hmm. and yeah. getting a flow, and the game does everything it can to prevent that. And I feel like my I was a diehard Sonic kid as a kid, then really, really fell off it. And now, like, with my kid, now I'm, like, re-falling in love with it, kind of meeting it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's actually just a traditional platformer. And I think once you start thinking about it like that, a lot of these recent Sonic games have been pretty okay. Sonic Colors, it happens. I think that there's kind of like weird, some weird rose-colored glasses for what people think Sonic was in the past versus what it actually was. But also the short answer, like I said, is just Sonic Mania. I guess that's true. I was thinking Mania was longer ago than it actually was. And I guess Mania did what I hope Superstars does, which is just be a Sonic game. Yes. Like like you're saying, Ash, like don't yeah. don't try to do other things. Just give me more Sonic. Yeah. Give me more Sonic and Knuckles 3 and we're good. Yeah. <laughs> you can keep making that game forever and ever with new stuff and I will always buy it and I will always be happy. And you barely even have to update the graphics. No, like, it's not fine. at all. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Chris, what's your first one? Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Nice. <laughs> Uh, which actually comes out before Metal Gear, so I am seeing the flaw <laughs> in my plan. <laughs> it comes out on October 20th, and I just love that this is the most Nintendo thing to do on the planet, that Nintendo spends decades making a and like refining an image of Super Mario to the point where they finally make a movie, and they're like, cool, great, we nailed it, now we're going to change the entire aesthetic. And they're like, no, are you sure you don't want to make a game that looks like, you know, Mario? Like that movie that just made a gajillion dollars? I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to make it look like a DreamWorks movie now instead. <laughs> and they're like, god damn it. I am so excited. I am so glad that Mario is going to turn into an elephant. It's going to be a delight. And I kind of don't want to see another image or trailer or anything from this game. Because, as the wonder in the subtitle suggests, like, I think the surprise of it all and the hint that it could be a little bit like Super Mario Brothers 2 in the US. That's enough to get me to play it. I wanted to ask, like, how do you feel about people saying, like, this just looks like an updated version of new Super Mario Brothers, which, you know, as I was a Sonic household, I was not a Mario household. So looking at this from the outside, like, this just looks like a new version of new Super Mario Brothers, but instead of 
I don't know, being a cat. I know that's not new Super Mario Brothers. Don't like don't at me. I know that's not it. Instead of being a cat, Mario just gets high. Right. Like it just seems like, okay, Mario drops acid. That's what the thesis of this game is versus something like Super Mario Galaxy or Super Mario Odyssey or, you know, where they definitely innovated on that formula this just looks like yeah a newer game was not that new of a game rather with like slightly updated graphics and maybe one twist that doesn't really feel as different as it should which though sounds exactly what tears of the kingdom was and then you played it and it was a completely different experience on the level that is like media shifting like earth shattering so i hope you're right in that we don't get to see anything else about it and they just release it which is kind of what nintendo kind of does is like okay yeah wait till they see this shit it'll knock the fucking socks off of them so yeah i think also to your point that like loving video games is a lot like being a wine connoisseur no matter like what your franchise is (laughs) so if you're inside of it you're like oh i love sonic or i love mario and you taste the the difference, and it feels more substantial than it probably is. Like, if every Mario game is red wine, this is like Lambrusco or like something sugary and like bubbly. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that a wine should do that. I don't know that much about wine, so I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here. But I, yeah, I think I think we search for those those like slight variations because we both want the thing that we're familiar with, but also want just that little hint of something new. I mean, it also feels like we're, I don't know if this is a bigger trend or not, but there is definitely in a lot of these franchises a sort of pull back to like, let's do the thing that works. I think everybody, everybody has been brought in by the the lure of the battle royale and the open world everything. And now everybody's just like, what if we just like made a cool game that's fun to play? Hmm. Which is why you're going to tell us about Mortal Kombat 1? Is that an alley-oop? No, it's why I'm going to tell you about Assassin's Creed Mirage. <laughs> you're right, the other one doing it. The two series I have played most completely in the course of my life are the the Arkham games of Batman, which I absolutely love to pieces, uh, and I'm very excited that they're coming to Switch, and the Assassin's Creed games. And the thing that happened with the last two, with the last few, really, Assassin's Creed games, was they just got too big. Mm-hmm. Everything got too open world, and it was just like, do you just want to be on a ship for the next five days? And I was like, no, I don't. Like, give me something to do. Give me a task. Let me go and actually play this game instead of just sort of aimlessly wandering yet another ancient town. Like, I don't know. That got old for me. And the story about Mirage so far is that it is a return to form in the sense that it is still big and interesting, but more sort of straightforward. And it's like a game you play rather than a world you explore. And I've just never been the, like, wander the world video gamer. I, like, appreciate those games and I understand why people like them. It's just never been for me. And Assassin's Creed is is like a puzzle-solving game at its best, and I'm very excited for that to happen again. Uh, I'm very hopeful for Mirage. The last two have been very disappointing, but I have high hopes for Mirage. Eh. <laughs> no? You're out on Mirage? I mean, it's a Ubisoft game in the year of our Lord 2023. I, I hate to do that because a lot of talented people work at this publisher, and everybody's trying their absolute best. But everything coming out of Ubisoft right now just feels so completely mismanaged. Mm. I would love for it to work. I really, really would. And it might be like my surprise there because everything you're saying is like spot on. That is what I want. I just I just feel like I keep getting burned every time I let myself get excited for one of their games. It's fair. And the worry would be that this is basically just they just release, you know, a, a 
10-year-old game mm-hmm. with slightly better graphics because they're like, well, we couldn't figure out a new story. People like the old one. We'll just do that again. And you're not wrong that that would be potentially the most obvious thing for Ubisoft to do here. So we'll see. Um, all right, let's keep blowing through. Last round here. Ash, what do you got? So I have a couple things that I, I want to mention. So the one thing was the Prince of Persia side-scroller that was announced at the Ubisoft Direct oh, that looks really, really cool. The prince has been kidnapped and taken to a forbidden land. I don't really jive with the Prince of Persia games, like the newer ones. I kind of really like the Xbox one where the girl, like, shoots flowers out of her butt when, you know, you unlock a thing. That was fun. That was a fun game. But beyond that, like, the Prince of Persia, like, that original trilogy and all that, that really didn't jive with me. But seeing, like, the side-scroller, I guess there's something about, like, side-scroller platform puzzle-solving action that just really gets me and seeing that game was like oh okay yeah i i think i would like that a lot so i'm really excited about that there was another game that was kind of like that but gives me more hades vibes it was shown during summer games fest it's from this i don't know actually where it's from it's just like this it had this like one-off thing it's called lishfanga the time shift warrior that's another me i look good it has this like Prince of Persia like aesthetic, but this woman can like split herself into different copies of herself to like solve puzzles and stuff like that and fight enemies. It looks really cool. It was one of the coolest things that were shown off during Summer Games Fest and like one of the only games that like featured a woman. Sorry, I had to get that in there. And then finally, this this one really does not fit within the purview that you set out for us, but it is a thick game that is always on my I cannot wait for this list. And that is Dragon Age Dreadwolf. But now... He wanted to tear down that veil and destroy the world. And we're the only ones who can stop him. We have been waiting for this game forever. Every so often, Bioware will pop up and be like, hey, we're still working on this game. It's still coming. Development is fine. We promise. Here's a little tidbit. And then they go back into their (laughs) hole for like another three years. And we're about that time where it's time to pop out of their hole and say, hey, this game is still in development and it's still coming. Here's, I don't know, here's crumbs for you, Dragon Age freaks, and then go back into their hole. So I'm really excited to see what that next little tidbit is. But I... I'm excited. Dragon Age is a series that saved my life in so many ways. So I'm really excited to get a chance to play another one. All right. I like that. That one isn't like a game you're excited about so much as it is like a YouTube video that will happen at some point that you're excited about. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, yeah, none of those count technically under the rules, but I'll allow it. Uh, It's okay. Chris Plant, last one. What do you got? I have one that's in the rules and one that transcends the rules. It transcends. It doesn't break the rules. It transcends the rules. Yeah. Okay. The the one that follows the rules is Alan Wake 2. Yep. I'm trapped here in this nightmare. I write to escape. Because Remedy makes interesting games. They made uh, Control a couple years ago, which I think was one of the top five games for Polygon's end of the year list. And Alan Wake continues uh, creator of the Alan Wake game, Sam Lake's fascination with Stephen King. Uh, And by fascination, I mean borderline stalking obsession. I just think the games are a delight. And I think that they understand the limitations of video game storytelling while actively wanting to push them. I think video game stories tend to have a bad reputation pretty understandably, and that's because they have a really tough task of both giving the player some sense of freedom and choice while then also having 
authorial intent, which the things seem to conflict. And I think that they enjoy toying with that, knowing that like almost thinking of story as an experiment and less as like, oh, I need to make the greatest thing ever because they kind of know from the beginning that that's not entirely possible within the strictures of a video game. Wait, just real quick. How do you feel about the fact that Alan Wake looks absolutely exactly like Bradley Cooper? What are your thoughts? I like that, but I like Max Payne better because Max Payne actually has the face of the creator of Alan Wake no as way. his face, <laughs> and he looks like he's painting like the world's biggest dump. Oh my god, um, that's great. It is such a good, good thing. And then my my like transcending the rules is I am ready for the game of capitalism to come to an end and for this Microsoft FTC oh, charade to just be absolutely over with because I'm just so done with it. Do you it. care at all? I care because living in Irvine, there are so many Blizzard and Activision people in this area. And my personal stance on this is I, I think it's like a parody of uh, government action uh, where things were not done when they mattered. So now it's going to be done over the people who make Call of Duty and Diablo. Um, and I think it's going to blow up in the FTC's face, um, which is bad and embarrassing for them. The good news is I think a lot of people who already work at a place that is notorious for being a difficult place to work can like get out of this like purgatory period and start moving on with their lives, which I think is like a better thing than whatever the past six months has been for all these people. Fair enough. That does, in fact, transcend the rules. I will, I will grant that one. Uh, my last one is Spider-Man 2 because I loved Spider-Man 1. Venom is the villain. You can play as multiple characters. It's just one of those things where they're like, we took a game that you love and we made it slightly better. Would you like to play it again? And my answer to that is yes, always, every single time. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to be like, we made swinging through buildings 6% more fun. And I'm like, yes, I will play it 500% more often now. He just flies, right? Like, I, I feel like on that trailer, it's like, but what if he just flies? And yeah. I was like... Yeah, he has like flying squirrel wings now. It's like, I don't think that's canon, but I'm cool with it. <laughs> As a across the Spider-Verse per enjoyer person I, who mm. did not play uh, Spider-Man 1 or the Miles Morales DLC, I, well, I can't say I'm excited for Spider-Man 2. I'm excited to, I guess, try it to see if it can sell me on what it is because it seems like a good experience. But beyond that, like, I don't know, man, those, I get it, but I just don't get it. It's a certain type of, of game, right? Like, I mean, we were talking about the Ubisoft thing earlier, but I feel like it, it demands a certain thing of the player, both in terms of, like, well, the politics of the yeah. game, but also the, like, the open world of the game and the, and the kind of to-do list. But that said, I get it as somebody who I feel like I could really use a good to-do list game. I cannot, I should have said this earlier, I'm so excited to get deeper into Final Fantasy sixteen because after Zelda... I am so happy to have a game that's like... You are on rails. You cannot go anywhere except where we tell you to go. <laughs> You'll do this and it will be and pretty. And you will like it. And it will confuse yes. you. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally get it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to have a game that doesn't feel like a creative exercise all the time sometimes. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, we need to take a break, but thank you both for doing this. This was, this was really fun and we're, we're going to have to do this periodically because God knows the games don't keep coming. But thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Before we go, let's get to the Vergecast hotline. 
As a reminder, the hotline number is 866-VERGE-11. Call and ask us all of your deepest, most personal, most chaotic tech questions. We love it. Here's one that seemed fitting for today's episode from AJ. Hi, VergeCast. This is AJ from Minneapolis. I'm curious to know, what advice do you have to keep an iPhone feeling fresh and performing well as it gets closer to its third year and beyond? A little background, I've been a mostly happy owner of an iPhone 13 Pro since that device launched about a year and a half ago, but the battery quality has gotten significantly worse recently. Some days I'm charging it twice fully just to make it through one day. I've made all my past smartphones last at least three years, but I am not looking forward to another year and a half of this phone. I'll probably be tempted to buy their latest device in the fall. Any advice to keep my battery in tip-top shape and keep this iPhone 13 Pro going strong? Thanks. AJ, I asked around, did some research, and I have good-ish news, I would say. The first thing that I tell everyone to do and is just generally good advice is reboot your phone more often than you think. Every few days, just turn it off and turn it back on again. It's good advice, frankly, for any gadget that you own, but you'll be amazed at the number of things that stop running in the background, that stop trying to access your location, that stop trying to access your microphone. These things just drain battery and they really add up. So reboot your phone every once in a while. A clean start always helps. Also, to the same end, delete some apps. Apps you don't use might be running in the background, might be refreshing every now and then. Apps that you genuinely don't use or care about, just get rid of them. Uh, the Ticketmaster app on your phone that you use two times, you're better off just downloading that and relogging in every once in a while than letting it linger on your phone. If you ask Apple how to help your battery, the first two things it will tell you are use Wi-Fi whenever possible and turn down the brightness on your screen. Those are only really doable things in certain situations, but take that for what it's worth. As little brightness as you can, Wi-Fi whenever possible. The thing I do to save battery life that I've had really good luck with is turning on low power mode on the iPhone. In theory, it turns some stuff off, mostly background refreshing and push email and that kind of thing. The place I notice it is it turns off background iCloud syncing. So if you use apps that sync through iCloud to other devices, you might notice it not syncing quite as often or successfully. But otherwise, I can have low power mode on all day and frankly, barely notice the difference, but actually get significantly better battery life. One thing you should do for sure is make sure that on your iPhone, you have optimized battery charging on. It's a setting, I think, under battery health in the battery settings in the settings app. And basically what that does is not fully charge your iPhone until you're going to need it. And there are a lot of people who will tell you that leaving your phone at 100% for a long time, especially plugged in, can be bad for your battery health. So turn that on. I'm generally not of the mind that you need to like really babysit the way that you charge your phone. I just think that's too much work, but you can at least turn that setting on and have the device do it for you at some point. But ultimately, the honest truth is you're just going to have to get a new battery at some point. I think we keep our phones longer and longer. And the idea that you can keep your phone for several years, but replace the battery somewhere in the middle of that range is not a terrible trade-off. I checked Apple's thing and it said that it'll be about $89 to put a new battery in the 13 Pro, which to me is totally worth it and certainly a lot cheaper than buying a new phone if you're otherwise happy with your phone. I think it's a bummer that you're already experiencing battery troubles with a 13 Pro, which is not an old phone. But if that is the case, you can check the battery health also in the battery settings in the settings app. And if it's below 80% of its original capacity, that's when Apple recommends and will actually work with you to replace it. So get a new battery, low power mode, reboot your phone every once in a while, and otherwise, good luck. You can be one of those people who obsessively charges your phone between 40 and 80%, which is what a lot of people will tell you to do. I think that's too much work. Do it that what you will. 
All right, that is it for the Vergecast today. Thanks to everyone who was on the show, and thank you, as always, so much for listening. There's lots more from everything we talked about, AI, Apple stuff, on TheVerge.com. Lots of Apple things coming in the next few days, I think. We'll put some links in the show notes, but also, you know, readtheverge.com. It's a website. We like it. If you have thoughts, questions, feelings, or other tips on how to make your battery work better, you can always email us at vergecast at theverge.com or keep calling the hotline, 866-VERGE-11. We are already building a bunch of episodes based on your hotline questions. So thank you so much for that. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Brooke Minters is our editorial director of audio. The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Neelai, Alex, and I will be back on Friday to talk about threads, Reddit, Apple, and lots more. We'll see you then. Rock and roll. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.